Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Some people describe a lonesome highway or the middle of a desert town, even a state like Ohio, as the middle of nowhere. But for others like Eric LeMay, no such place exists. There is always a there there. It's the presence within the absence that draws LeMay, either because the absence offers mystery, intangibility, or perhaps it trembles with what came before. Hamlet pondered to be or not to be, but in LeMay's writing, the self, our world, even texts don't exist as either or puzzles. It's the missing pieces, the in-betweens that are as much a part of everything as anything else. LeMay's In Praise of Nothing, Essays, Memoir, and Experiments, not only makes something from nothing, it shows us how we all do. LeMay contemplates the namelessness of John or Jane Doe, the Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns, the past's echoes, and ground zero. Yet he also elucidates the ways in which words, those in existence, and those imagined, can create a new reality or alter the perception of the self. Here is LeMay's experiment to sift through layers of text, images, research, language, and memory in order to reveal how we make meaning out of nothing at all. According to LeMay's own description, in praise of nothing exists on the printed page, and it also exists slightly altered in an electronic version, shadow versions and doppelgangers, doubles and divergences lurking in the digital world. So you can read, for example, Losing the Lottery, a randomly numbered collage of statistics, anecdotes, quotes, and personal accounts of the obsession with those overwhelming unknowns, the winning numbers. Or you can go online and play your own. LeMay is an innovator in the interactive digital essay, and while you can read viralize and resistible in the pages of his book, you can also go to your computer and click to see what's there, what's not, and more importantly, how what we see and what we don't are equally integral in the making and multiplying of meaning. Montaigne asked, what do I know? But what if what we know is nothing 
In this playful and poignant collection, Eric LeMay shows us that nothing is never nothing. It's really something. Eric LeMay, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Thank excited you, to talk with you about nothing. I'm so excited I'm talking over you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things that struck me about the essays, even the memoir in this collection, is that each and every one has a unique structure, as if the space of nothing resists form. And when you add the digital doppelgangers, form truly disintegrates. Were you conscientious of creating such a structurally varied collection of essays? You know, that's a great question. I think part of the fun of essays is that, that it's a very messy genre. And if you push hard enough against the definition of an essay, it just all falls apart. And so, you know, I, I even look back to the the founder of the essays, Montaigne, who was trying to figure out what this form was in uh, 1580. And sort of the best he could do was was liken them to monsters, that they're just these mouse-shaped things that come together and they don't really have form or symmetry or anything else, um, which goes against all the classic definitions of what literature should look like, the beauty and symmetry of a, poet, uh, of a poem, the kind of epic grandeur that you find in Homer and Virgil or something like that. But essays are just these quirky little things, and so form just seemed a kind of freedom um, that I could play around with, that, you know, form could be something that happened in flight, like in a digital essay where you weren't quite sure where it was going to go or what it was going to look like, or form could be something very rigid, so, you know, there's this memoir piece that's kind of essayist, essayistic, and it's got just a whole bunch of containers that I sort of filled as I went forward, um, and so I think form in the essay is something you grope along with and try to figure out as you go. Um, and the essay kind of accommodates that. It's very friendly. It says, you know, you might not know what you're doing here, but we're going to discover something and we're going to find the form organically as we move forward. Say in contrast to like a sonnet, where you kind of know exactly how that beautiful shape's going to turn out and what kind of logic it has. And so the essay of the lo- the logic of the essay is just kind of a gamble. You roll the dice and you see what shape it's going to take as you move along. And for me, that's part of the fun and joy of the genre. That's one of my favorite things about your work is the playfulness of it and how with each page that I turned, I was having to learn how to navigate my way through through the essay, particularly because of the varied structure. And you mentioned that memoir, uh, which is my favorite selection from your book. I like how on the left side of the page, you have your memories of your childhood or early adolescence. And on the right side of the page, there's these ruminations on what comedy is and does. Um, and this is the, the memoir with the title Resistible, a comic memoir about comedy. Can I ask you to read um, an excerpt from that before I ask you about it? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds like fun. And okay. uh, this is sort of, you know, the listeners might want to know, this is kind of the centerpiece of the book. It's much longer than a lot of the essays that, that go along in it. Um, so I'll, I'll read one of the ones that kind of maybe sets out why comedy might be one way of, of going at uh, what it means to write a memoir or what it means to try to think about who you are. Um, so this one is called Really? Genuinely? Um, <laughs> and it's a little meditation. And so here it goes. About two-thirds of the way into the 2005 film adaptation of Tristram Shandy, 
The actors playing the film's director, producer, and star collectively despair over the film they're in the middle of making. Why do we want to spend a year of our lives making this film? Because it's funny, another answers. Is that all? Isn't that enough? And then there's the final answer. If it's genuinely funny, that is enough. It has to be really genuinely funny. And then I ask, what I wonder lies on the far side of enough? More than just funny, of course, but funny profound, funny instructive, original, wise... The filmmakers must have some such answer in mind, because the film immediately cuts to a quote-unquote expert who explains the book they're adapting. And then the expert speaks. The theme of Tristram Shandy is a very simple one. Life is chaotic. It's amorphous. No matter how hard you try, you can't actually make it fit any shape. Tristram himself is trying to write his life story, but it escapes him, because life is too full, too rich to be able to be captured by art. Perhaps really genuinely funny means having a theme, in this case about life, art, and the rift between them. I also wonder what lies on the near side of really and genuinely fake funny, inauthentically or disingenuinely funny. What sort of funny wouldn't justify spending a year of your life in the making of it? What sort of funny doesn't end in despair? I started this memoir in 2002. <laughs> Well, as the editor of Meta Writings, I appreciate that you read um, a meta excerpt there. Um, so, so to my question, because memoir is grounded in memory, it's presumed to be ponderous or ruminative, but you're showcasing memory as comical. And one of my favorite passages in the book, you write, comedy doesn't pretend we grow up whole or happy or that we don't lie awake in the night and go through the day with our hearts breaking in our hands. Comedy lets us go to pieces and not fall apart. How did this approach to memoir come about? I think I grew up in a family where telling memories was also about laughing. Um, and so it was, you know, I think a lot of people have had this experience where my father and my grandmother would say, remember that time when, and then it would just be this story that would end up in cackling. And and I think what I realized is that the way that, that my family told stories and remembered the past um, was always one of kind of comedy. But as I grew up, I, I realized that it wasn't just about... Um, wasn't about comedy just for laugh's sake, but there was also a kind of way of, of recognizing tenderness and heartbreak and disappointment um, when you told stories that also make you laugh. And, and laughter had this redemption, redemptive function. I remember there was a, a comment that I came across years and years ago that Martin Amos made about Lolita. And he said that the reason that it's the funniest book in the English language is it because it, it works with the entire range of laughter. Um, from slapstick to the kind of dark comedy that maybe you find in the, the deep niches of Chekhov and places like that. Um, and that laughter is kind of one key in which we play our lives. And so this memoir was a, um, a testament to that and a, a kind of celebration of that. But it would be hard for me to imagine my life in any other way, but as I remember it, to kind of laugh. And sometimes it's, it's joyous laughter and other times it's weeping laughter. Um, but to look back at the younger self that was Eric LeMay is, is just to be brought to kind of, you know, cackles of tears or something like that. <laughs> Well, I really appreciated it because it made me think about my own writing 
and how I resist humor in my writing, except that my writing is not often, not always read that way. A quick anecdote. Every time I give a reading, when I get to the line that is the most difficult emotionally for me to enunciate, people in the audience laugh. And I have been told, you know, I have a dark sense of humor and I think, no, I'm just dark. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I want want to tell the listeners, too, that within the range of comedy that you achieve in this memoir, you also achieve this poignant portrayal of your family that I really admire. Ah, thank you. Yes, well, I think that um, that when you have those those events like readings, laughter is one kind of catharsis. You know, you get supercharged with emotion, and I think your work, you know, when it hits its climax, it will achieve a kind of emotional density and intensity. Um, and so, my guess is you have a couple of people in the corners of the audience who are starting to tear up and dabbing and not wanting anybody to see it, and then other people who there's nothing left for me to do with all this emotion but chuckle. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, whether we're drawn to, to darkness or humor, you know, poignancy, um, hilarity, it, it's all it's all there um, in in this collection. And you write in the opening essay that you're drawn to nothing. And that perhaps this collection is an escape from our culture's obsession with images. Was this the impetus for this collection or, or how did it evolve? The collection, I mean, it's a great question. Like, where do these books of essays come from? And, um, you know, there's this this tag word that gets slapped onto essays called occasional essays and that essays often, you know, they arise out of occasions in our life, which is something different again from sort of those traditionally grander genres like poetry. You know, you fall in love and you must write sonnets Um, (laughs) or, you know, you, you, you come up with a profound thought and you must write an ode or you have a story to tell, you know, about a white whale and you must write a novel, an epic novel. And then you have occasional essays where you, you know, you happen to bump into a pig drive in the street in London and you think I've got to write this up mm-hmm. um, you know or uh, in your case you remember being in a bar in Texas you know as a young woman and you think this is this is definitive somehow and I've got to write this up and a lot of the essays were were occasional in that way and you know when I when I would have my my kind of capital L literature cloak on I would think these can't be anything more than occasional little pieces that, you know, spurred out of almost nothing. Um, and so, it, you know, one of the ways that the title works, I think, is um, that, that a lot of what we make of our experience and a lot of our everyday life amounts to nothing when we see it um, in regard to something like, you know, epic grandeur um, or, you know, poetic emotions or something like that. And yet that's the stuff that really matters. Um, and so it's, it's that thought that you have crossing the street, um, or it's that fact, you know, to take the title piece of the collection that you suddenly find yourself not watching what you should or, or being distracted by all these images and looking for the blank spots in your life, uh, or in the, the television program that you happen to be watching and thinking, what, what might be hiding there? What might that reveal? Or isn't it nice just to have an escape and a space where you have a moment to think or breathe? Um, you know, and often that meditative ruminative quality of the essay comes at those moments where we aren't so intentional or so driven 
to accomplish something and the surprising thought happens um, or the quirky observation happens. And those are things that I think as an essayist, I really like to cultivate and see where they go. And often they amount to nothing. And sometimes those nothings turn out to be something worth sharing or at least offering to a reader. You actually achieved this idea of the occasion of the flash you know, that, that moment, right? You mentioned you know, crossing the street and there's this flash. And in this collection, you have these intermittent flash essays that give the reader this breath that you mentioned. And it, it reminds me of something that Bernard Cooper once said, describing his own use of flash essays intermittently in a collection. And he said he uses it to provide a shift for the reader or to allow the reader to think about things in a different way. Would this be similar to your intention with the flash pieces in this book, or was it something else altogether? I I think Cooper's idea is, is a great one. I think to take a step back, Essays can often ask a lot more of readers, or, or they ask something in a different way. So, you know, when you're reading a narrative, you're, you're asked, say, in that novel that you're reading on the beach to kind of imagine this world and to move along with characters and plot and to invest in them. And there's a, a certain kind of, you know, generosity that a reader has to bring to really make a novel come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and essays, they'll ask quirky things like, would you think about this with me? Would you take a pause with me? Uh, I can't quite figure that out where this goes, but I'm going to ask you, the reader, to do that work for mm-hmm. me. Um, so there's this there's this kind of, I think it's a different relationship. It's, it's an odd and quirky one that you suddenly ask of the reader when you invite them into an essay, because you really ask them to, to essay with you, to take it on with you, and to see what's going to happen. Um, and I think the flash works nicely because it provides this little gem of experience or observation, whatever the content of it is, and you kind of put it on the table there and you, the author, look at it and you kind of turn it around. But you imagine that there are some readers sitting around the table with you and that they might come to different conclusions about that. And I feel as an essayist, I need to be a little bit humble about what kinds of statements I might make, because I do imagine the reader's going to come to different conclusions about the same evidence that shows up. And so there are a lot, you know, I looking back at the collection as we do again and again when we have to get it ready for publication, the number of perhapses and maybes <laughs> that show up in the book <laughs> almost exhaust me. But I think, like, that's this little linguistic tick that shows, like, you know, I realize that other people are going to come to different ends of that. You know, and sure enough... Um, a few of the kind responses I've had to the book, they've been, you know, this, this, like that, Eric, but in this essay, no way, right? This one, just, you got it all wrong. And and I think that that, you know, maybe it's just the essay tank, but it can also be a sign that the essay invites in more than itself, attitudes that are larger than itself, and it can kind of be capacious. And another little thing I think about the flash um, is that in some ways it goes back to the roots of the essay. So as, as the early English essayists were trying to figure out what this thing is, the essay, um, they, they called it 
they, they made a distinction between two kinds of knowledge. Um, there was the scholarly knowledge, right? The scholars would go and they would write on these same subjects. What is virtue, right? What is truth? What is the good life? Um, you know, who is Virgil, things like that. But their books were just too long and too boring and went into too much detail. And the essayists thought that w- that was a mistake. Nobody wants to hang out for a 400-page book. Um, <laughs> and then they, they, they contrasted it with gentlemanly knowledge, they called it, um, because the essayists at this point were, were gentlemen. Um, and that was the knowledge that was that was interesting, that was useful, the kinds of stuff that you'd want to put in a book because other people might find it fascinating, might find it something um, that would galvanize them or or sturdy them up in some way. Um, and it had to be short because otherwise you get bored, um, or it would take too long to get to the good stuff. And so, you know, essays were kind of born relatively crisp. Uh, most of Bacon's would fit on a page now, um, in his first edition. And so, you know, the essayist needed to get down to what was good. And I think the flash, uh, the recovery of this flash genre that's now pretty much a, you know, uh, in poetry and fiction and, and now in nonfiction is a way of preserving that impulse. Like, let's get right to the heart of it. Let's get to what matters and bring the reader there. Um, Denty Moore talks about, you know, it's basically like fire jumping. You're in a plane and suddenly you're dropped into the middle of the fire and there you go. Um, versus the long scholarly tome that's going to take you on this journey that you may never finish. I have so much respect and awe for your knowledge of the history of the essay which comes through not only in that answer you just gave, but also in in praise of nothing. I, I've been flipping through to um, the essay of studies since you mentioned Bacon. Uh, and this is this essay that includes excerpts from Montaigne and Bacon and Foucault with your own words. Um, and you are a reader uh, as an essayist. Your persona is very much a reader and someone who thinks about language and words. And in that essay, you mentioned that you highlighted this line from Foucault, to search for a meaning is to bring out a resemblance. And what I wrote in my copy, and I'm sorry if that makes you shudder that I've written in my (laughs) copy, um, but I asked this question at the end, do we read others to read ourselves? That's a fascinating question. I think through encounters with others, we can become more ourselves. Um, And sometimes that's through identification. You know, I I see in that writer a version of myself or a version of my experience being articulated that I would have never seen before um, or didn't know was always there. Um, and suddenly it's, that's the pleasure of recognition. Um, that's one of the sources of why literature moves us so much. Yes, that's me. Um, you know, how did Montaigne know me so well, uh, has been a response that Montaigne has received over and over again throughout the, the decades since his work was published. And of course, Montaigne didn't know us at all. He knew himself very well. And by being able to amplify and articulate what it was like to be himself, we discover ourselves in those articulations because, you know, human beings aren't all that different, except when they are. And that's the other uh, encounter that I think happens in essays is is the the articulation and encounter of experience that is 
radically different from from what you have and and I think that expands your humanity in some ways um, every once in a while i'll I'll be teaching a literature class with my students and I'll get the student who's brave and smart enough to, to ask the question like you know why do we even have to read any of this stuff you know they're in the the required class and they're interested in being an engineer Eric why are you having us read Romeo and Juliet I read that in the ninth grade or you know why are you having us read this collection of short stories or these essays um, and what I one of the metaphors I've tried to answer it with is you know that if you likened human experience to something like a piano keyboard right um, that that we have these keys and and one of the ways we learn how to play it is through experience and we kind of get like dink 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 because our lives aren't that rangeful um, some of ours are sometimes we travel or we have rich experiences but other times you know if you're like me you grew up in the suburbs and there's not too many ditties that you hear there um, and what we start to encounter with literature that's very different from our own experience is the the range of keys and possible music that we ourselves are pa- capable of playing, you know, as human instruments. Um, and so to encounter books that articulate experiences that are much different from your own, whether that's in space or time, gender, whatever lines you might cross, um, is to, is to feel fuller and to experience your own life more fully. Um, and sometimes that's through empathy. Sometimes it's through disgust. Uh, you know, you encounter that writer that just makes you so angry. Um, but that too is a reaction. You know, we all know that that's the opposite of love as opposed to indifference. Um, and so I think any of the strong reactions we encounter in literature, whether it's through identification or suddenly radical strangeness it can add to our life especially if you're a bibliophile which most of us essayists are well i i think about that line uh, of montaigne's each man carries within himself the entire human condition and you mentioned talking to your students and and i always quote that montaigne passage and stress identification find something in, in the book, the play, the film, the essay, the story that, that you can I- identify with, whether or not you've had that particular experience, right? So you write in that comic memoir about a moment watching Boy George on MTV, and your father walks through <laughs> uh, the living room. And so that took me to, for me, it wasn't Boy George, it was the slumber parties that my friends and I scheduled around the playings of Michael Jackson's Thriller video. That's right? adorable. Yeah. So that, <laughs> so that so that we could we could do the dance in Amy Anderson's living room. But anyway, um, so going back to this idea of reading ourselves or even writing ourselves by by reading other essayists. Why do you think essayists allude so much to other essayists? I mean, rarely do you open up an, a novel, right, and read a narrator who's alluding to another character or another novelist. Why do you think we as essayists rely, borrow so much? I mean, are we just trying to impress people or is this <laughs> to, to, to thought, Right. I mean, you mentioned um, the perhaps in the, in the maybes when you were going through the editing process. And the first time I held meta writings in my hand and flipped through it, I was appalled 
at my overuse of I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I'm thinking about it. I'm writing about it. But it, do you think this is perhaps why? See, I got your perhaps and my I'm thinking about <laughs> one sentence. Is this why essayists rely on other essayists so much? Because we are thinking about the ways in which others have thought about what we're writing about? I think that perhaps that is a great answer. <laughs> I, I think we see ourselves in a tradition, and the tradition is one of acknowledging the, the, the thinkers that have come before us. Um, I love your idea that we're trying to impress people. I'm trying to think of, you know, <laughs> could I go to a party and say, excuse me, everyone, there is an essayist in the room. Could all the velvet ropes please be pulled back so that I can go into the inner of the inner VIP room? And I don't, I don't think that would happen. Um, <laughs> But I, I do think that you're right that you know, from the very start, right, uh, Montaigne was mm-hmm. putting in quotes from others and riffing off them. And, and I think that there's an historical answer to that, which is that essays came out of the commonplace books where you would write the, the passages of others that you felt were worthwhile. And then with Montaigne, you begin responding to them with thoughts of your own. And so there's a kind of call and response that's at the origin of the essay. I think another tradition that that is more forceful for me um, is that in the essay you're looking kind of for friends. That there's this tradition of you know the friend as being central to the essay, um, and that goes back to how you regard the reader. That, that the reader is somebody who's kind of going to do this with you. Come on in, let's think about this. Right? Um, there's a very kind of invitational aspect to the essay. And so to incorporate the voices of others is to get rid of that authorial model of the one voice, you know, the, the, the monological voice that booms its truth or its idea. And instead to say, you know, here's what I think, here's what some other people have thought here to the best I can is some conclusions that I've come to or some deeper questions. Um, but to imagine that you're on this shared enterprise and anytime we write an essay that we entitle, you know, on memory or on friendship or on truth or on beauty or, you know, even on walking the dog on a Saturday afternoon, we're not going to be the last people to do that verse and, and much less are we going to be the last people to write about it. Um, and so I think the essayist knows they're not the last in a line of conversants that are going to take up the topic that they're working with right now. Um, and that hopefully like in any conversation, you'd want to be doing it with a friend. Um, and part of that is acknowledging, you know, what they've had to say. And, you know, I'd, I'd want to take a minute right now to acknowledge Scott Black's work on the essay. He's one of the ones that taught me about the early essay. And he wrote this book called on the early English essay that I think is one of the best, the best books out there. Um, about the genre, not just its history, but it now. And, you know, and, and through him, you know, I, I've had conversations where I've learned so much more about what it is that I'm actually doing um, and what we're all doing. And so I think that it's it's this invitational aspect. Hey, I'm thinking about this thing. Hey, here's some other thoughts that have got me doing it. And, and now I turn it over to you, dear reader, to sound Edwardian. But, <laughs> you know, where are you going to take it? Well, you mentioned that the reader will do this with you, but you do a lot of work for the reader. And you mentioned the the concept of you're not going to be the last. I'm thinking about the research in your writing um, and how that 
imbues the essays with the idea that you're certainly not the first. You've mentioned in this interview so far um, words like evidence and knowledge. And research does figure so heavily in your writing. In, in this book, you integrate newspaper headlines. There's um, a 60 Minutes episode, images from historical societies, lottery statistics, not to mention all the quotes from, from other writers. How does research play in terms of your writing process? Mm. Do you begin with the research or do you begin with the writing? I think for me, it's, it, there might be a, a way to go back to that distinction between sort of essayistic knowledge and scholarly knowledge. It feels to me like when I write scholarship and used to, I would do research. I would go back over, you know, thorough investigative um you know, make sure that I knew everything about this. And, and for the essay, it's often as though I feel like I'm on a search. Um, and so here's the way I often think about it, right? If you're writing a paper or an article or, or a scholarly piece, you do all your, your research behind the scenes, you do all your work, you figure out what your thesis is going to be, what your idea is, why it matters, where it fits into the conversation that came before you, what evidence supports it. And then you organize that as a finished product for your reader. And you say, you know, reader, here is this finished piece of knowledge that I have put together as an argument. Um, you know, and it, it becomes part of the, the legacy of knowledge. And, uh, and I think as an essayist, I'm still excited by the, the same things that that we discover in research, um, but it usually begins with a question or, or an unknown. Um, you know, so so what does it mean to be Jane and John Doe? Is is one of the essays in the piece, um, or what's the significance of this nineteenth-century asylum that sits over the little town that I live in and kind of looms, sometimes like a, a gothic nightmare, and other times like a piece of beauty. Um, and what kind of legacy did it did it leave for those of us that live here now? And for me, I feel it's okay to include that search as part of the essay, as part of the unfolding. You know, I don't know. I'm going to start in a state of not knowing rather than open the piece in a state of knowing and see where it gets. And, you know, if it's completely unfruitful, that's probably an essay that's not worth sharing with the reader. But I feel like if I get some some traction and, and make some distance in that journey, um, then going on that journey of discovery is one worth sharing with the reader. I'm going to do a, com- a complete shift. Um, like to- an essayist. <laughs> exactly. Um, to turn to the essay Hamlet, a failure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, another one of my favorite lines from, from your book, you write, loss is not a nothing. Can you elaborate on that in the context of this collection or just on that line? Sure. So that's an essay about seeing a production of Hamlet, um, at the site of ground zero, um, down there at the world trade center. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, any of us that can remember going through that, um, there was loss and it was an absence, but it was certainly a, something that changed all of our lives. And uh, you know, to an extent, we're still trying to reckon with and we're still fighting a war um, over that loss. And so trying to give shape, um, 
trying to give shape to the the negative spaces that define us as much as the things that are there, right? Um, you know, we're cut out of absences as much as we're cut out of the things that surround us and the people that surround us. And when they disappear, you know, they leave holes in us. And those are as much us as uh, the people that we can still put our hands on. And so trying to think about, you know, the emptiness um, that is as significant to our lives as, you know, what filled it um, and trying to to honor that. So not to fill it with something that's sentimental and and not to let it not to let it disappear because it matters, um, but to somehow trace it out and recognize it and live with it and go on. Um, I remember one of the the more beautiful things I ever heard. Um, the poet Alfred Korn was talking. He was writing a letter um, to a friend of his who had lost a, a lover to AIDS. And he was trying to somehow articulate, you know, what it means to live after that when the person you love has died and died so horribly. And uh, and he talked about Japanese pottery um, and the fact that if an old vase breaks and you put it back together with that soldering, that it's considered more beautiful um, than the piece that was once whole. And that somehow that's what we need to do with our lives. And we need to recognize that that crack right there exists and that there's a way in which if we can't entirely redeem it, we can at least embrace it and go on. And, uh, and I think sometimes those absences are the very things that, that we need to make sure don't go away, um, as hard as they are to remember and bear. And, and so there is this strain in my work of, of trying to memorialize and trying to, to do honor to parts of our lives that are passing or have passed. I'm so glad you articulated that because when we first started talking and and we were talking about comedy and I and I was mentioning the playfulness of your work or the hilarity or even the jovial convivial tone that you have there's also this weight to the work and that particular line loss is not a nothing really resonated with me and I thought about the loss the losses um, that I carry like a, like a weight or even sometimes a, a companion walking next to me at all times. So I just like to thank you for that line. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to the, the playfulness. Do you feel like you're playing when you write and you know, feel free to talk about the digital work too, a little bit in terms of the, the playfulness of your, of your work. Sure. I, I, maybe here would be a chance to just uh, share with listeners the fact that the book exists in a whole bunch of different forms. Um, so there's a print edition that looks very much like you'd expect that has, you know, 15 essays that sort of go from one thing to the next in an occasional fashion. Um, but then there's a, a kind of iPad, iPhone version that includes video clips and some audio pieces um, you know, that you can't get in print. And then there's also an online component that you're, you're welcome to go to. It's freely available, um, that has three essays that are 
that I, I just dubbed them playable essays, but they're essays that have a, a certain degree of interactivity. So one's about the lottery, and as you're reading it, you play the virtual lottery. And another one is based on that old game Asteroids, uh, and kind of has a lot of fun with Werner Herzog and you know his deeply dark cosmological vision that almost comes out on the other side is comedy. And, uh, and then there's another one on Tetris, where you kind of play and explore the legacy and effects of Tetris, which are surprising, um, the extent to which that, what that does to your brain. Um, and so there is this idea of playfulness. And I think, uh, you know, one of the, the kind of quotes that stayed with me as I was thinking about a title was Wallace Stevens talking about the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. Mm. Um, and I think that, that, that Stevens for me he revealed that there's a joyfulness in ideas, that ideas too are a pleasure. And essays will often, and you know, my essays in particular, will, will traffic in ideas. They're interested in the way we think and epistemological questions about what it means to know or not know and, and why it matters that you do or you don't. And sometimes what the virtues are of not knowing as much as knowing. Um, and so, so I think that the playfulness comes about with this idea that you know, the things that matter to us, it can be as much the, you know, the hand that's really serious and full of gravity is one way of approaching it. But also there's a lightness um, that can reveal things, a lightness of touch as well. And so trying to balance those two. Um, and and again, I think that would go back to kind of, you know, the LeMay family where the deepest and most important things were also things that might end up leaving you giggling. And so honoring two different ways of, of going at the same sorts of questions seemed to me something I wanted to bring to the work. Your answer about the research and talking about what you don't know reminds me of something that Philip Lopate says in his introduction to the art of the personal essay about how the essay interrogates what he knows just as much as he asks what he doesn't know and why. And I think I think this collection really does explore that in-betweenness of the known and the and the unknown. Before I ask you about what's what's next for Eric LeMay, what nothing are you most fascinated with right now? Oh yes, thank you. Um, well, I've been working on a couple of pieces about language, and I think you know, after you finish a big collection, um, one of the things that happens is you think, well, what have I just done? What have I committed, uh, on the world? And, um, <laughs> and, you know, so, so one of those things is, well, let me take another look at my medium. And, uh, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do as a writer is, is push the medium of the essay outside of, of just language into images and into kind of interactive content and video content and audio content. But then, you know, there's words. And so I've just been uh, working on a piece on nonsense and on kind of the functions of nonsense and, uh, you know, what nonsense allows you to know, um, but also the ways in which it, it scrambles and thwarts meaning. Um, and what would be the idea of, of, beneficial or positive nonsense. So, you know, the nonsense that goes along when the Jabberwocky approaches, um, or the nonsense of, you know, that, that children speak right before language locks in and they're, they're ready to go. Um, so it's been thinking with other people. It's been thinking with the Dadaists and thinking with Freud about the ideas of nonsense. Um, and just the ways in which, you know, when you look at these 
cases on the edge of language, what do they reveal about the center? And so right at the moment where language just isn't quite language, what does that show us about what we can do with words when we're, we're at the edge of non-words, but not quite gibberish or, or you know, screeching? You know, if you follow up a book about nothing with a book about nonsense, <laughs> you're going to become known as the negative essayist. I, I would right? love Which to would be, be such an ironic term for you. I think if, <laughs> if I ever became known with, as an essayist, I would want to write an essay about the improbability of an essayist getting known for anything. Um, <laughs> but I would, you know, I, I think if I were going to take a stab at, at making it maybe a little less silly than it, than it could be, it would be something like, you know, the, the via negativa, the way of, of knowing through not knowing um, oh, that has a yeah. long tradition is one that's been very compelling to me. Um, and so, so that I think, you know, I could, I don't think I would say that it's, it's the kind of thing that when I think about my sensibility, I see a recognition and an identification with those thinkers, um, whether that's the cloud of unknowing or, you know, the, the kind of, limitlessness that Dunn talks about when he talks about the divine. Um, and I think, you know, it has a long tradition that I'd, I'd like to approach in one way or another. Um, so if I'm getting some small uh, tincture of that, then ha- ha- I love that. <laughs> well, you, you kind of answered my, my what's next for Eric LeMay question, right? With more essays. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, then my, my final question, and this is one I like to ask writers, and it goes back to something uh, filmmaker Martin Scorsese was once asked about if he could put um, a film or an excerpt from a film into a vault and have it speak as his work, what what would it be? And he answered the, the opening sequence of Raging Bull. So as a as a um, as a tease for your readers, if if you wanted to highlight one essay from this collection that you really feel encapsulates the the collection, which one would that be, and why? Oh, it's a great question. It's one of those you know, here you are in the desert island. Who are you? Kinds of things. <laughs> what results um, are you going to take with you? I think I there, there's an essay that is about a lost garden, a, not, a lost 19th century landscape garden uh, that closes the essay. And it's it's about the history of this garden. Um, it's the one that went with the asylum that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it begins in words and pictures. Um, and what I try to do with the images, and it's, it's much clearer on some of the digital versions of it, is that I'm layering... Um, snapshots of the past right at the turn of the century in the 1890s uh, when pictures were taken of this garden um, with what I've tried to do um, is recreate them in the present. So stand in the exact same spot that the photographer was standing in, take the same shot and layer them over top of one another. Um, And the landscape, you know, you can see the changes of the landscape and the essay tries to, to bridge that distance and to recognize the impossibility of doing so. And it begins in words and it ends in images because the words just can't quite do it. And I think it, you know, if any of the pieces kind of reach for that via negativa of, you know, talking about God, maybe just because you can't figure out quite how to do it, that's probably the piece that does. So 
I think I'd want to put that one in the vault, and I'd want to put that one in the vault because some of the photographs that were taken over a hundred years ago, I would want the people that opened that vault to see them. Mm. And that one's available online too. Yes, I, it is. I tell <laughs> listeners, yeah, it really it really comes to life uh, when you're able to click on those images and see the layering of the photographs. Well, Eric LeMay, thank you so much for talking with me so articulately about your book and your writing. Thank you, Jill. It was a delight to be here. And I look forward to reading your nonsense. (laughs) I'll look forward to spewing it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This is Jill Talbot, and you've been listening to the New Books Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.